Lord, we ask that you will help your people to hear your word and to see wonderful things out of Psalm 107 that we might see your glory and experience it and taste it and like it. We pray, Father, that the seeing of your glory in the scriptures might create a boasting in the Lord, a kind of thankfulness that boils up into confession and proclamation. We ask for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Midtown Baptist Church exists to glorify God in Christ. If you've been to our website, it's, it's there. To glorify God in Christ. And by God's grace, we pursue this vision by treasuring God's glory in Christ, building one another up in the faith, and proclaiming his gospel among all peoples. So treasure, build, and proclaim. Again, you probably saw that coming into the, uh, to the room or to the building, and you also have it in the front of your order of worship. Treasure, build, and proclaim. So we treasure the glory of God in the gospel of Christ. We see God's glory fully displayed in the person and work of Christ, and we say we, we want that. We want the glory. We see the glory, and we want it. And so we aim in the life of our church to treasure the glory of God and to enjoy everything that God is for us in Christ. It is in the act of treasuring God's glory in Christ that we build each other up in the faith. So they're not two separate things. We build one another up on the premise of the gospel. We bank our lives on what this book says about Christ. And we do it together so that our delight in God and our feasting in the mercies of God is not individualistic, but congregational. We, we, we confess these things congregationally like we just did with the Apostles' Creed. We are called to the family table, and we feast on the glory of God together. So treasuring the glory of God in the gospel, then, and building one another up in it, we also proclaim it to all the peoples of the world, starting with our neighbor, so that the glory of God in Christ might be known to the ends of the earth. We want more people to share in his glory. We want more people at the table. And so we go out with hearts full, right? We, 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 we ate, we feast, we, we have our hearts full, and we say, come, come and taste this. If you are new at Midtown, or if you have visiting with us for a while, know that this is what we're all about. The glory of God in Christ, known in our church and treasured throughout the world. It is our deep-rooted biblical conviction that this is what we are supposed to be about. These are, these are biblical convictions. It's not just a cheap strategy for marketing, right? If it, if, it, if it was a strategy of marketing, it would be a horrible one because people hate the glory of God in Christ. And if you don't believe me, you can just watch the news. We believe, and it's our conviction, that this is what we are supposed to be about. And we see these things all over the Bible. We just, we just didn't make, make them up. Let me give you three quick examples. First Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. So Jesus died so that he might bring us to, die, uh, to, to, to God. He didn't die so that we will follow a seven steps into a richer and healthier, better in life. 
He died so that we could have God. That is, that is Christianity. Because of God, we get to be with God. So there, there's the treasure. And Jesus died so that we may come to God and, and, and have him. Second example, 1 Thessalonians 5, 10 through 11. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. There's sort of treasuring in there. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So there's the building up. We do this on the solid foundation of Christ's death on our behalf. The third example, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you may proclaim his excellencies. God saved you so that you might go out and proclaim the excellencies of the glory of God to the world. So there's the proclaiming. Treasure, build, and proclaim. This is what the people of God are to be about, and so that's what we are about. At least that's our aim. Now I begin this morning by reminding us of our church's vision and mission because I want them to be on our minds as we approach our text this morning, Psalm 107. I'm not trying to impose these things into the text, but simply reading the text and hearing echoes of treasuring, proclaim, and building. Simply echoes of these things. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me and follow along as we read Psalm 107, and hopefully you will hear some of these echoes of treasuring, building, and proclaiming. This is what the psalmist says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble, and gather in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wander in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of the death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had reveled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They felt down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffer affliction. They loathe any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. 
They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storms be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people, and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water and parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the word of God. Psalm 107 then is framed throughout with a command to give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love. You probably heard it multiple times. You see the command in verse 1. I'll give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And you also see it repeated four times in verses 8, 15, 21, and 31 with a refrain, Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. So we can say that the main point of this psalm is to call the people of God to respond to the Lord's steadfast love with thanksgiving. To call the people of God to respond to the Lord's steadfast love with thanksgiving. In the context of the, of the Old Testament, the steadfast love of the Lord is essential to God's own revelation of Himself. If you remember, as the Lord passes before Moses in Exodus 34, He proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As you see, the steadfast love of the Lord is closely related to His faithfulness, so that the two terms can sometimes be used interchangeably, steadfast love and faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord is His faithfulness in keeping His covenant with His people. And so therefore, God reveals who He is, like He did with Moses. He reveals His glory in being faithful to His people in showing them steadfast love, so that the call to thank the Lord for His steadfast love is the call to boast in God Himself. The steadfast love is not an end in itself, but a means, so that God is the ultimate end. So we are, we're doing this series on the steadfast love of the Lord throughout the summer, and by doing that, the steadf- focusing our attention in the steadfast love of the Lord is the means to focus on the Lord Himself, because in His steadfast love, He reveals His glory. Now, at this point in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 107, 
the glory of God is, on, is, is pretty much on the line. In Psalm 106, um, the psalmist recounts Israel's unfaithfulness and closes with the plea of an exiled nation. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So the people of God are in exile. So it seems that God has not been faithful to his promises. The salvation of exile Israel will result in the praise of God's glory displayed in their salvation. So Psalm 107 is the immediate response to Psalm 106. Although Israel has been unfaithful and they have broken the covenant, God remains true to all his promises. God hears their cry, delivers them from their trouble, and gathers them in from every land. God reveals his glory by displaying his faithfulness to his covenant in the salvation of his people. So that the steadfast love of the Lord confirms that he indeed is good. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. So the psalm is framed throughout by the command to thank the Lord, and it is also bookended with two other commands or imperatives. You can look at them with me. First, in verse 2, let the redeem of the Lord say so. Let the redeem of the Lord say so. The redeem of the Lord are commanded to say something, namely that the Lord is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. They are commanded to confess and to proclaim his goodness. The second command that book, that book ends the psalm is in verse 43. Verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Attend and consider. The commandment here is to consider the steadfast love of the Lord with full attention, with undivided attention. That means that the steadfast love of the Lord is not something to be merely felt but interpreted and understood. There's something to be seen and to be considered. The steadfast love of the Lord is subjective and perceivable. The connection between all these three commandments is that, the, that, that paying close attention to the steadfast love of the Lord results in thanksgiving, which wells up in confession and proclamation. So we see something, it creates something in us, this boasting, this thankfulness, and spills out into confession and proclamation. It is the act of paying close attention to the steadfast love of the Lord that produces the thanksgiving and the confession. The thankfulness and confession are not manufactured by human exertion. I don't know if the last time that you decided to be thankful for something, but it, it doesn't work that way. At least it doesn't work that way for me. These things are created by the seeing of the heart and the mind. You, you see something with the eyes of your heart, they are created as we pay attention to God's glory revealed in the salvation of his people and his steadfast love. So in this psalm, Psalm 107, God's glory and salvation is seen in two, two ways. It is seen in the redemption of God's people, and it is also seen in the judgment of his enemies. They're not two different realities. They're the same thing. As one scholar has put it, God's glory is revealed in salvation through judgment. In Psalm 107, the psalmist describes the redemption of God's people in verses 4 through 34 and God's judgment of his enemies in verses 35 through 42. The redemption of God's people in verses 4 through 34 and God's judgment of his enemies in verses 35 through 42. 
So paying attention to these things creates a kind of boasting and thankfulness in the Lord that wells up into confession in the church and the propagation of God's glory in the world. So the first thing that we see in Psalm 107 then is God's glory displayed in the redemption of his people. God's glory displayed in the redemption of his people. In verses 4 through 34, the psalmist gives us four war pictures or portraits of redemption in which we see four truths about God in salvation. But these portraits are more than just pictures. They are, in a sense, windows through which we see God's glory. These descriptions of redemption are not meant to be merely known or understood, but to be accessed in, in order to see and treasure and experience God's glory. So they're not simply for us to understand they're not simple portraits. They're windows through which we see God's glory in the redemption of his people. It is like reading your Bible, right? You don't simply read to know stuff, but to love the glory of God revealed therein. Tomorrow morning when you get up before work and get your cup of coffee with no sugar, no cream, of course, you read your Bible not so that you may be able to know stuff, right, and, and win a Bible trivia, you, you read in order, in order to see and to feel something and to experience the glory of God revealed in the text. So four war pictures that the psalmist gives us about the redemption of God's people. The first picture is in verses 4 through 9, where we see the truth that God redeems his people by satisfying their soul as their highest treasure. God redeems his people by satisfying their soul as their highest treasure. If you're trying to take notes, I'm sorry. I, got, I didn't know how to condense this point. Um, so there you are. The picture is one of aimless pursuit. These exiled wanderers go about in uh, deserted paths that lead nowhere. They are hungry and thirsty. They have no home and nowhere else to go. And their physical condition points us to a deeper reality of the state of their soul. Their soul fainted within them. Because exile is ultimately separation from God. Their circumstances point us to the deeper reality that apart from God, our soul is empty. It hungers and thirsts and pants for the living God. The language in these verses is reminiscent of the Exodus account and the subsequent rebellion of God's people in the desert. There's a lot of Exodus language in this song. The wandering, the hunger, and the thirst, they're crying out to God, and God's response as he hears their plea and acts to deliver them. In verse 7, the Lord leads them by a straight way, just as he did in the opening of the sea. In line with the Old Testament prophets, Psalm 107 describes God's salvation of his people as a kind of new exodus. And as the future-oriented hope of the fulfillment of God's new covenant promises. In this new exodus, God delivers his people out of their wandering. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So that the emphasis is on God and what he does. He is the one who acts and delivers. And in doing so, he gives himself. In the, re in the redemption of his people, God brings them to himself and satisfies the longing of their soul. This first picture of redemption forces us to face the emptiness of our own souls apart from the living God. Is your soul thirsty and hungry and longing for something else this morning? 
we will actually be, be fools to think that there's anyone in this room that is just, you know, going around happy in Jesus and has no aching in their heart. All of us ache at some level. Maybe you're thinking this morning, man, there has to be more to life than making a living, buying stuff, and uploading pictures to Instagram, right? Hopefully there's more than that. And the good news is that there is. There is much more than that. There's God. The good news is that in the gospel, God promises to give himself to us in Christ. God is the soul-satisfying treasure that we long for. So that they can take the world away from you. They can take everything away from you. But God promises to give himself to you in Christ, and no one can take that away from you. Chad read from Romans 8 this morning. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? No one. Nothing. Why? Because his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness endures forever. His glory is on the line. He will not give his glory to another. In this first picture of redemption, then, we see the truth that God redeems us by satisfying our soul as he gives, gives himself to us. He is the hunger and thirst quenching treasure that our hearts long for. Nothing else will do. So my, my plea with you is that if you are pursuing satisfaction in anything else but God, that you will turn away from that and trust that God is the soul-satisfying treasure that your hearts long for. Facebook likes will not do it, right? You got 500, then you want 600. You always want more. A new job will not do it. Only God can, can satisfy the longings of your soul. So that's the first picture of redemption. The second picture of redemption is in verses 10 through 16, where we see that God redeems his people by delivering them from sin and death. God redeems his people by delivering them from sin and death. Verse 10 describes prisoners sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. They are afflicted and shackled to chains of iron. Their physical condition, again, points us to a deeper reality. The unbreakable restraint of the iron and the darkness of the prison cell points us to the yet darker reality of the condition of their soul. They sit in the shadow of death because, the text says, they have reveled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. In response to their rebellion, God bows their hearts and delivers them over to affliction. They are separated from God because of their rebellion. And separation from God is death. Right? That is what sin does to you. It separates you from, from God and kills you. When we rebel against God and spurn his war, we become prisoners of death. The wages of sin is death, the Apostle Paul says in Romans. And notice that the emphasis here again is on God. God is the one that delivers their hearts to be bowed down with affliction. And I feel like a lot of Christians today, we... we cringe at that picture of God delivering people over affliction. But that's, that's the Bible. God's judgment, however, is meant to lead his people to repentance. Here, the same pattern of deliverance, deliverance from verses 4 through 9 is repeated. The people cry to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivers them. 
Let's not pass over this too quickly. See the grace and mercy of God. Though he may afflict his people for a moment, his mercy and steadfast love endure forever for those who turn to him. Though he may afflict his people for a moment, his mercy and steadfast love remain. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and able to save to the uttermost. In response to their cry, he brings them out of darkness and the shadow of death and bursts their, parts, uh, their bonds apart. So a picture of a glorious deliverance. God is not weak, brothers and sisters. He is powerful and sovereign and yet merciful. The severe hand that afflicts is also the gentle hand that saves. The severe hand that afflicts is also the gentle hand that saves you. So therefore, entrust yourself to the hand of the Lord. We have to entrust ourselves to his hand. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. So is your heart bowed down and afflicted this morning? Do you sit in the shadow of death because of your rebellion and disregard of God's word? And I'm not saying that all affliction is caused due to rebellion, but we're, we're going with what the psalmist says in this specific text. If the affliction caused by your sin tastes like death, well, guess what? It's because it is death. So don't be fooled. Sin will kill your soul. Sin will kill your soul. And therefore, turn to God and cry out for mercy, and He will have pity on you. You might say, brother, you, you, you don't understand. The shackles are too strong. The prison cell is way too dark. And there's no way that I can get out of this one. I'm, I'm, I'm way drenched into this thing. But remember God's steadfast love. Remember that in Christ, God is for you, steadfastly powerful to save you. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. If it feels like you are in a prison cell, that you're shackled, is because you pretty much are. But God is mighty to save and faithful and steadfast love. In the second picture of redemption, then we see the truth that God redeems us by delivering us from sin and death. He delivers us from sin and death. The third picture of redemption out of four in verses 17, is, is, uh, in verses 17 through 22, where we see that God redeems his people by healing them through his word. God redeems his people by healing them through his word. Similarly to the second picture, the affliction here is the result of foolishness and sin. Because of their iniquities, the text says, they suffer affliction. They drew near to the gates of death and loathed any kind of food. And the situation is so bad that they just, just, they just want to die. The people again cry out to the Lord, same pattern, and he delivers them. And the emphasis, again, is on God's action. But this time, the psalmist says that the deliverance happens through the word that God sends out. He sent out his word and healed them. The word, in verse 20, is the means of deliverance from destruction and death. So this third picture gives us a glimpse of, of, of how the Lord accomplishes redemption. It is through his word. The nature of the healing of God's word is redemptive. It does not heal a physical infirmity, at least in this text, but delivers them from destruction. It delivers them from destruction. 
That is why we make the Word of God central in the life of our church. Everything we do from the songs we sing to the corporate element of confession and the preaching of the Bible, we make it our aim to make the Word of God central to the life of our church. Because we know that it is the means that God uses to accomplish salvation for those whom He calls to Himself. It is the means, the agent, through which God calls people redemptively. In verses 21 and 22, the redeemed are called to thank the Lord for His steadfast love. This, as we have seen, is the main point of the psalm. They are, in fact, commanded to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and to tell of His deeds in songs of joy. That's why I love singing with our brothers and sisters here. Because through these songs, we are telling the deeds of salvation. When the musicians stand here and they lead us in Bible-saturated songs, they are leading us in confession and proclamation. So you should be singing when we, when we sing. And when an unbeliever sits in our midst and they hear us singing, they are hearing the proclamation of God's glory in Christ. They don't need to wait for the sermon to hear that. They're, singing it, they're, they're hearing it as they hear us singing these songs so that you have an active part in confession and proclamation on Sunday morning. And again, therefore, you should sing out loud. In this third picture of redemption, then, we see the truth that God redeems His people by healing them through His Word. God's Word is the means by which God gathers His people to Himself. He creates the church through His Word and sustains her by His Word. The Word of God is our life and sustenance. It is in His Word that we have access to the glory of God in Christ. The fourth and final picture of redemption is in verses 33 to 38, where we see that God is the sovereign Lord of creation, and as such, He is able to accomplish redemption. God is the sovereign Lord of creation, and as the Lord of creation, He is able to accomplish redemption. Now, this picture to me is, is fascinating because it is not describing people in exile like the earlier verses. At least, I, I don't think it is. Rather, he talks about sailors doing business in the sea. We know that the Israelites were not known for sea trading. So I conclude that those described in these six verses are not Israelites. They are sailors probably from other nations. If you have read the book of Jonah recently, when Jonah is in the ship, you have all people worshiping all kinds of gods. I don't think these are Israelites. I don't think these are exile people. God delivers his sailors from a tumultuous storm, which is described as the wondrous deeds of the Lord. The terrible raging of the sea melts the hearts of the sailors, but it is no match for the sovereign Lord. It melts the hearts of the sailors, but it is no match for the sovereign Lord of creation. They cry to God, and he causes the storm to cease. He hushes the waves and commands the water to be still. He then brings them to their desired haven. What is fascinating to me is that the same pattern of deliverance is repeated, is repeated for these non-Israelite sailors. Even more fascinating is the fact that they are commanded to extol the Lord in the congregation. This to me is a picture of the nations being summoned as the people of God 
to proclaim His excellencies. This is us, right? The nations, the Gentiles. So these four word pictures or portraits of God's redemption of His people reveal God's glory in the redemption of His people. In salvation, God rescues us with sovereign power, heals us through His word, delivers us from sin and death, and gives Himself to us as our as our all-satisfying treasure. Now in verses 33 to 42, we see the other side of salvation. It's the same coin, just two faces. God's glory revealed in the judgment of His enemies. God's glory revealed in the judgment of His enemies. God's kingdom, we can say, is an upside-down kingdom. He turns rivers into desert wastes and springs of water into thirsty ground. He humbles the proud but exalts the humble. The Lord saves His people from desert wastes but makes His enemies wander in them. He pours contempt on the oppressor but raises up the needy out of affliction in order to bless them. They dwell and are established in a city. Their hunger is satisfied. They receive the fruit of the labors and multiply greatly. In conclusion, they enjoy the fulfillment of all of God's new covenant promises. And they also, the redeemed, see God's judgment on their enemies and are glad. Why will we be glad as we see God's execution of judgment on His enemies? Well, because it reveals His glory. It reveals His glory. Wickedness shouts its mouth. God's glory is most clearly seen in the salvation of His people through the judgment of their enemies. That's what salvation is. God delivers His people out of the oppression of their enemies. Verses 33 to 42 are a future-looking celebration of God's fulfillment of His new covenant promise. They look forward to that fulfillment, to the day when God will establish His kingdom to bless His people and execute judgment on His enemies. The day when God's glory will be fully revealed and known in all the earth. And for us, that day has already done. It is here already, although not yet fully consummated. God's fulfillment of His new covenant promises are already fulfilled and yet not fully consummated. We read Psalm 107, and we celebrate God's glory and salvation fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. It is in the person and work of Christ that we see the glory of God most clearly. Psalm 107 ultimately points us to Jesus, because salvation is ultimately in Jesus. Christ is the sovereign Lord of creation, he walked on water, hushed the waves, and calmed the storm. You, you remember the story from the Gospels. He is also the suffering servant. Christ wandered in, the, in desert wastes for 40 days. And in there, the bread of life experienced thirst and hunger, which is a mystery of mysteries, that the bread of life himself will experience hunger for his people. He was tempted and tried, but found guiltless. He resisted temptation with the Word of God and defeated Satan through his obedience. 
And Christ sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. He tasted death for us. His heart was bowed down with labor as he carried the cross up the mount. And his soul was in anguish with none to help, not even his father. He was forsaken that we might be remembered. He suffered death in order that we might live. And on the cross, God displayed his glory fully. Salvation through judgment, redemption and wrath. His fury poured out on the Son and and redemption accomplished for us. So it is the display of God's glory in Christ that we are called this morning to attend to. The steadfast love of the Lord points us to his faithfulness to us in his Son. It is the display of God's glory in the salvation of his people and the judgment of his enemies that causes thanksgiving to swell up in our hearts as a principle of new life. And it is the glory of God in Christ that we confess and proclaim. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, I pray for your word this morning.